This is African News Tonight on The Voice of America. Hello and welcome. Welcome to African News Tonight from the English to Africa service of The Voice of America, your source for pan-African news and world developments. I'm Yehiyas Wuhib in Washington. Coming up on African News Tonight... After the war, Europe was rebuilt because America put up big money to rebuild Europe. Africa has never got that opportunity in terms of a Marshall Plan to build our economies and all that. Former Ghana's President John Mahama talking about the need for a Marshall Plan for Africa. Details coming up also. Severe flooding in South Sudan is affecting nearly one million people. And the United Nations warns of human rights abuses against migrants in Libya. We have these stories and more on African News tonight. But first, our top story. At the World Bank and IMF meetings going on this week, among the big topics being discussed is the global economic growth outlook, which does not seem to be very healthy. Jonas Gamso, Ph.D., is an assistant professor of international trade and global studies at Arizona State University's Thunderbird School of Global Management. His teachings include principles of global management, states and markets in the global economy, international trade and regional economic agreements, and global affairs methods. I first asked the professor to explain some of the key factors behind the global slowdown. Yeah, so as you said, a global growth outlook does not look good, and this has been uh, highlighted in the World Bank IMF meetings this week. And this reflects several factors that are connected to each other. They're, they're not independent of one another. First of all, high inflation and high oil prices in particular. High prices are going to lead to reductions in demand and also reductions in employment. So that's the first factor. Second factor, which is again re- related to the first, is um, high and growing interest rates that are raising borrowing costs. And then uh, a third major factor, and this is this is uh, particularly true for uh, emerging markets, is a strong U.S. dollar. So strong. So for for goods that are denominated in dollars, those goods are going to be more expensive. As a result, things are going to be more expensive. Trade is going to be more costly, um, and this is an impediment to growth, particularly in emerging markets, but but also in places potentially like China and the EU. So what what could this mean for uh, African governments? African countries have there's been sort of a, a positive um, uh, sentiment about the growth trajectory for African countries, and and that could continue to be the case. But these things are definitely going to put pressures on African countries, and and potentially they could lead to unemployment. They could lead to the exacerbation of uh, hunger. Um, which is already in in a state of crisis. And of course, this could have sort of effects uh, down the stream in terms of social unrest, political unheaval, uh, et cetera. These are, there could be significant uh, impacts for African countries, and there will almost certainly be some impacts on African countries, because again, trade, foreign investment, and foreign aid are all likely to decrease uh, if the US, China, and or the EU fall into a recession. So what should uh, African governments do to kind of uh, uh, avoid what all these pitfalls you're just mentioning? The first thing that they should do is to try to identify alternative markets for investment and trade. So uh, forming uh, free trade agreements, forming bilateral investment treaties uh, with, with partners, trying to uh, ramp up the implementation of the Africa-wide uh, free trade agreement. 
uh, those are all things that can reduce transaction costs on trade and investment so that even if there is pressure for these things to, to decline, maybe the reduction in transaction costs uh, will, will offset it a bit. And then identifying new markets so that if the US, China and the EU fall into recession, there are alternative uh, buyers of African goods, alternative sources of investment. And this doesn't have to come from outside of Africa. Uh, again, there, there's this uh, African trade agreement that creates an avenue for more uh, internal trade and internal foreign investment. So th- that would be one thing that I would uh, encourage African governments to prioritize. And the other thing, unfortunately, is prepare, sort of prepare for the worst, right? Prepare for recession. Now, hopefully that won't happen, uh, but better to be prepared, right? So uh, get resources in place to provide domestic stimulus if necessary. And obviously that's going to be easier for some countries than others. And then if you know, get the ball rolling on restructuring debts to prevent defaults. And traditionally, it's been with the IMF and the World Bank uh, that, that uh, countries have had high levels of debt and, and um, taken opportunities to restructure that debt. But now it's kind of an interesting dynamic because uh, China is, a, is a, a large lender. And with Belt and Road Initiative, uh, there are African countries that have borrowed quite a lot from uh, China for large infrastructure projects. And so trying to restructure those debts is, is sort of a new challenge, figuring out uh, how to work with um, China to prevent uh, those debts from getting out of control and uh, from uh, creating uh, defaults potentially. So those are the two things I would highlight. Look for alternative markets and prepare for the worst. Hopefully the worst won't happen, but better to be prepared. And that was Jonas Gamso, a PhD and assistant professor of international trade and global studies at Arizona State University's Thunderbird School of Global Management, speaking with me by phone from the U.S. state of Arizona. Former Ghanaian President John Mahama says he'd like to see Western countries develop a Marshall Plan for Africa, like the United States program that helped Europe's economic recovery from World War II. He spoke to the host of Straight Talk Africa, Heidi Adams, during a visit to Washington recently. I think that it's a period of adversity for the whole world because it's um, triggering a kind of global recession. Um, China and Russia and I don't know which other countries appear to be on one side and then the whole Western world is also on the other side. Already um, in Africa, if we need um, funding for infrastructure, big infrastructure projects, the place to go is China uh, and the East. Um, Normally, the Western countries would invest in the social sector, in education, in healthcare, and things like that, but not big infrastructural uh, projects. I'll make an exception for the Millennium Compact, which uh, President Bush introduced, and which Ghana has benefited from twice. But normally, if you want to do a bridge or a road or a railway or something, often you'll go to to the east. Um, At the last G7, um, the Western countries uh, talked about a $600 Uh, a a fund to assist Africa and other developing countries in terms of infrastructure. I know that the United States has put up the uh, DFC, I think it's the DFC, and they've committed about $100 billion uh, to uh, assist countries in critical infrastructure projects. So it's an opportunity for us to uh, benefit in terms of improving our infrastructure. But at the same time, it's an opportunity for us to look within and see what we can do better. 
in terms of trading amongst ourselves. Happily, we've passed the African continental free trade area. And as I speak, the first commodities are beginning to be exchanged. Um, a shipment of tiles from Ghana, I read this morning, is going to Rwanda. And a shipment of tea is coming from Kenya uh, to, to Ghana. I mean, that's good news. I mean, we've been advocates of this for so long. We're happy it's happening now. 11% trained amongst ourselves. That's, it's, 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 it's ridiculous. And so we are hoping that this can push trade between ourselves even to 50% so that we're able to multiply the benefits within the continent, but also uh, get benefits from outside. Africa never got a Marshall Plan. After the war, Europe was rebuilt because America put up big money to rebuild Europe. Africa has never got that opportunity in terms of a Marshall Plan to build our economies and all that. Do you think Africa... Should ha there should be a Marshall Plan? Yes, after Africa. slavery. After slavery, I think there should be a Marshall Plan. I mean, slavery affected the continent very adversely. And um, I do believe that um, if a Marshall Plan was put up, you know, and we got the right leadership on the continent, and we do the kinds of things we're doing, trading, building the infrastructure on the continent, we can create a, a decent existence for our people. I have confidence that Africa is the next you know, uh, emerging continent, and it's going to be the next uh, frontier for investment and business. That was the former president of Ghana, John Mahama, speaking with my colleague Heidi Adams. You can see more of this interview on VOA's Straight Talk Africa program and on voaafrica.com. Chad's government today named opposition politician Saleh Kev Zobo to replace the prime minister who resigned a day earlier. The announcement comes four days after a national sovereign inclusive dialogue said military leader Mahamat Idris Debi Etno would serve as the transitional president and would govern for two years until elections are held. Cameron Hudson, a senior associate at the Africa Program Center for Strategic and International Studies, spoke with VOA senior analyst Mohamed El Shinawi about how some coup leaders in Africa have angled to stay in power. Well, I think it's uh, not a surprise that Idris Debi, Mohamed Idris Debi, uh, has assumed this role as transitional president. I think the writing was on the wall going into the national dialogue, given that many of the most prominent opposition figures and armed opposition figures boycotted the national dialogue because they feared that it would be dominated by the Debbie party and clan. It essentially created a situation where the outcome was essentially very clearly understood uh, from the very beginning. And so I think it's unfortunate that the international community didn't uh, push more strongly to ensure that uh, this was not the outcome. But, but now that it is the outcome, I think there's another opportunity to try to ensure that a civilian cabinet is named and that genuine efforts be taken to reform the political system so that free and fair elections are a possibility at the end of this transition period. The international community had urged Debbie not to run for president in the post-transition, but the National Dialogue Forum gave him a green light to run at the end of the transition. What kind of message his running would send to coup leaders in Africa? Well, I think what we've seen is a pattern among coup leaders across the continent in the last few years 
whereby uh, rather than simply seizing power uh, and declaring themselves presidency, they declare some kind of interim transition period, uh, create an interim constitutional document, perhaps even as was in the case in Sudan, they appoint some civilian uh, cabinet or administrators uh, to share power with. And I think what's what really matters is the end of that transition period, because I think many of these leaders They expect that the international community over the two or three year transition period will lose focus, will lose attention, or will simply come to accept these military figures as heads of state because they are providing uh, some measure of continuity or stability in their governance. And so they hope that uh, the international community will, at the end of the day, simply go along with these uh, installation of military leaders. And so I think we have to be very vigilant now, as I said, to make sure that this pattern of behavior is not repeated and that we are very vigilant in making sure that as we approach these uh, transition period ending, uh, that we have in fact done the necessary work to put in place true opposition governance, true reform in the party system and political process, and the technical skills to pull off a uh, free and democratic election. So I think it is incumbent upon the international community not to lose focus during these periods of transition. That was Cameron Hudson, a senior associate at Africa Program Center for Strategic and International Studies, speaking with VOA's Mohamed El-Shinawi. You're listening to Africa News Tonight on The Voice of America. I'm Yehiyas Wuhib in Washington. The UN Office of the Coordination for Humanitarian Affairs says at least 900,000 people have been affected by floods in 29 counties across South Sudan and the southern part of the disputed Abiyé administrative area. Some are seeking help from the government and aid agencies. Sheila Pony has more for VOA in Juba. In its latest report on the flooding, UN OCHA said people in northern Bahar Ghazal, Warab, Unity and western Bahar Ghazal states are the worst affected. Annette Hens is the acting head of office for the emergency response agency. Floods have destroyed livestock, destroyed crops, washed away roads and bridges, destroyed people's homes, schools, health facilities, submerged boreholes and latrines, which is contaminating now the water sources. And this then risks the outbreak of various different diseases, especially waterborne diseases. UN OJA says there are increasing water levels in Rupkona and Bintu towns, putting pressure on existing dikes. The flood waters have now reached the highest levels seen in 2021, according to United Nations. Urol County Relief and Rehabilitation Coordinator Gatwang Jiangxiang describes the full scale of the devastation of the county residents are facing. Many highlands where people can be able to survive at this night, but we don't actually what to do. For animals, when they are just standing on the water, because there's nowhere for them to go. At least 35,000 people have been displaced from their homes in Urol County of Jongoli State, where last night authorities rushed to evacuate people to higher ground. Kalanj Bolish, chairperson of the Benji Youth Forum, says dikes broke down, 
causing flood water to flow into the camp. The, the guy broke at night, so people were to rush for uh, essential properties. Kalanj urged eight agencies to intervene. The IDP camp in Benju is home to about 26,000 people, many of whom are trapped at the camp due to flooding. The International Organization for Migration has scaled up life-saving support for the flood victims. Peter Van Dyer is the IOM South Sudan Chief of Mission. We have been at the forefront together with UNMIS and WFP on building and maintaining the infrastructure, dikes, roads that uh, protect Benji Rupcon and the RDP camp against flooding. And this is, of course, an activity that we will continue to do, especially the monitoring and the repairs uh, as is needed. Hence, says work crews are working on repairs in the areas and identifying vulnerable areas before more rains set in. The teams have mobilized sandbags, soils, and are getting into canoes to facilitate going out into the water to then fix the dikes as they are leaking. In western Bahar Ghazal state, the collapse of a key bridge between Wau Raja County due to heavy rains has hammered the aid response to some 50,000 people. For VOA News, I am Sheila Pony in Juba. For more news on South Sudan, you can listen to VOA South Sudan in Focus program every day. Find it on voaafrica.com. A new UN report finds migrants in Libya are subject to systematic human rights violations and abuse to compel them to accept so-called assisted returns to their countries of origin. Lisa Schlein reports from Geneva. Authors of the report say migrants in Libya are trapped in an untenable situation. They say the migrants are forced to choose between returning to the countries they fled because of unsafe or unsustainable conditions or facing continued ill treatment in Libya. The report says migrants frequently are compelled to accept assisted return to escape abusive detention conditions. These, it says, include threats of torture, sexual violence, enforced disappearance and extortion. UN Human Rights Spokeswoman Ravina Shamdasani notes that assisted returns in principle are meant to be voluntary. However, the report finds that in reality, many migrants in Libya are unable to make a truly voluntary decision to return in accordance with international human rights laws and standards. Many of them find they have no choice but to return to the same circumstances that made them leave their countries in the first place. The UN reports roughly 600,000 migrants comprising more than 40 nationalities are in Libya today. Among them are some 43,000 registered refugees and asylum seekers. Since 2015, the UN reports more than 60,000 migrants have been repatriated to different countries of origin across Africa and Asia through so-called assisted return programs. Shandasani says most of the migrants come from sub-Saharan Africa and are exposed to particularly severe treatment in both official and unofficial detention facilities. One of the... um... Uh, witnesses of an, uh, a police anti-migrant raid said, if they saw a black person, they would just catch you. They demolished homes, locked people up in jail, 
They were holding 4,500 black people like dogs. The UN Human Rights Office is calling on Libya and involved states to take immediate steps to address what it calls an indefensible, unconscionable situation. It says Libyan authorities must end all violations and abuses of migrants' rights. It adds other states should provide more protection to migrants trapped in Libya by increasing safe and regular pathways of admission to their territories. Shandasani tells VOA the report was shared with Libya prior to its release. She says no formal response has been received, but UN officials will be reaching out again to offer their support in implementing the report's recommendations. Lisa Schlein for VOA News, Geneva. Organizations fighting for the rights of sex workers in South Africa are up in arms after six bodies of semi-nude women were discovered in a car workshop along the downtown streets where many sex workers are known to operate. This human rights organizations want the government to decriminalize sex work so that women will no longer have to operate in the dark. One man has appeared in court over one of the killings. To Sokumalo reports from Johannesburg. According to witnesses who were first on the scene, the stench of rotting bodies led to the discovery of the victims. One body was thrown into a dustbin, while another was shoved under garbage. The other three were dumped inside cars waiting for repairs. Kashego Rasbite, spokesperson of the Sisonke National Sex Workers Movement, pleaded with the government to decriminalize sex work. Either sex workers or not, but we're talking women who are dead. This is a massacre in terms of the sex work industry. It's a it's a blow. At what point are the voices of women that are getting murdered, that are getting raped, that the police also are preying on them? They're going to be listened to. Victress Matutu, chairperson of the Zim Imbogodo, an organization fighting for the rights of migrant women and children, told VOA that the murders shocked many women. Sex workers are just workers like any other worker. They're just workers like domestic workers, like nurses, doctors, whatever. It's a line of work that they chose to do. So this is very shocking. It's sad. Amnesty International added its voice for sex work to be decriminalized. Shanila Mohammed, Amnesty International South Africa Executive Director, told the media that it would aid in creating safe spaces for these women. Some of the women were reported to be sex workers, highlighting the urgent need to decriminalize sex work to provide some level of safety and protection for sex workers in the country. Meanwhile, police used CCTV in the building to link a 21-year-old male to the murder of one of the women. He has appeared in court and was remanded in custody. The killing has once more put the spotlight on the brutality of gender-based violence in South Africa. Between April and June, over 9,000 cases of rape were opened and over 800 women and children were killed. Tusokumalo for VOA News, Johannesburg. And that wraps up this edition of African News Tonight. I'm Yehiyas Wuhib in Washington. For all the latest developments on the continent 24-7, visit our website at voaafrica.com. 
On behalf of our producer, Mokbilia Barro, and our engineer, Nelson Lopes, thanks for choosing The Voice of America. host of Music Time in Africa. Join me every Saturday and Sunday for an hour of awesome African music. Wake up, dance this music. Like to stay on top of new music trends? Breakout artists? New releases? Maybe you just love the classic styles and artists of the past. Or simply the sound and feel of a good beat. Whatever your pleasure, you can get it every week right here on Music Time in Africa. So join me on your local FM stations.